Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets. What's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. Today you'll be listening to the first in a series of interviews in which we'll make our predictions for 2010. My first guest is Australian economist Steve Keane. He's an associate professor in economics and finance at the University of Western Sydney. He strongly criticised modern neoclassical economics and some Marxian economics as inconsistent, unscientific and empirically unsupported. He's risen to some prominence in recent years as he correctly predicted the global financial crisis of 2008 as early as 2005. He argues that it arose quite simply because there is too much debt in the Western world. He's also a strong deflationist, with one of his hypotheses predicting that too high a ratio of debt to GDP can cause deflation and depression. Hence the title of his website, DebtDeflation.com. His book is called Debunking Economics and it's available in paperback and also as an e-book at DebunkingEconomics.com. Steve, um, hello, welcome to the show. Uh, would I be correct in saying you see this crisis as far from over because we still have the debt? Absolutely. It's a, I think a reasonable analogy might be having somebody who's been uh, getting fatter and fatter and ignoring the whole thing until such time as they have a heart attack and go into a hospital and the doctors pump them full of uh, antibiotics and stimulants and everything else and uh, then they walk out of t intensive care thinking they don't have to worry about the weight they've gained. I'm sorry, then the first time they try to run, they're going to have another heart attack. <laughs> oh dear. So I, I take it then that your outlook is, is pretty negative for 2010. Uh, yeah, negative, but there's an unfortunate double twist to it. One reason I came out making the claims I did so long ago is that I was afraid what would happen is that we would ignore the actual cause of the problem, avoid, you know, avoidance seems to be a human trait, and, uh, and go for palliatives rather than direct cures, which is precisely what Japan did 20 years ago. And of course, you might remember all the wonderful rhetoric from American neoclassical economists in particular and the Reserve Bank over there about how foolish the Japanese were to ignore their to try to keep their zombie banks alive and to continue trying to deficit finance and boost their economy. They should really just confront the situation, wipe off the bad debts and uh, and uh, get away from just trying to get government stimulate their way back into, into action again. Well, guess what? We're doing exactly the same thing. We're turning Japanese. But I came out to make the warnings to, first of all, say this crisis would happen. And now what I expect is what I'm going to call basically zombie capitalism. So... We should look to Japan for what's going to happen and uh, magnify what's happened there because it's all happening on on a much bigger scale. And also because, of course, Japan was supported to a light, very large degree by the fact that uh, when it fell down the hole, when its bubble economy burst back in 1990, it would rely on exporting to the rest of the world to keep it ticking over. Of course, that's why Japan fell over so badly this time around because its export markets disappeared. Well, I'm afraid uh, Japan does export to the rest of the world, but we don't export to Mars, so we don't have that... <laughs> external stimulus to help uh, us out of the way that the Japanese had. So I think in many ways we'll find ourselves having a less successful path than the Japanese has followed. 
what's I mean, what's next? I want to ask what's next for us and, and about government debt. But let's just focus first on Japan. Well, I mean, what next for Japan? Because, I mean, their their government is just in so much debt. It's phenomenal. Well, the crazy thing is that, of course, a, a, a sovereign company, a country like Japan, which has its own captive central bank, can effectively issue as many yen as it wants to. Uh, it can continually keep on doing this. But the trouble is that that then has a, a boost to, to demand coming out of the extra government debt, which turns into extra spending power in the economy and keeps it ticking over, as some uh, erstwhile colleagues of mine called charterless keep on emphasising as the, the entire solution. My dilemma is, of course, that on the other side, you've still got massive private debts, which are very slowly being reduced in Japan, and the boost being given by the government sector's debts are countermanded by the reduced demand coming out of the private sector trying to reduce its debts but doing it nowhere near as rapidly as it should. So what you get out of that is a, a boost on one side and a drag on the other, and as a result, growth is always uh, you know, hardly, hardly enough to cover um, the needs for uh, the growth of the population. Of course, Japan doesn't have that problem. So, of course, the rest of the world, with uh, the combination of demographic change and, uh, and this drag from the, public, from the private sector reducing its debt while the public sector tries to boost it up with additional debt, uh, it will just be a, a very slow, drawn-out, uh, long-term period of growth, never quite getting high enough to bring unemployment down. And it's then the question of what happens politically after five or ten years of failure like that. We, we, we keep reading about sovereign debt default, and, and we've, you know, many mm. people will have seen what happened in Iceland. But what happens when a country like America or Great Britain has a sov sovereign debt default? Well, that's, um, first of all, if they have the debt for themselves entirely, they, they don't have to, have to actually basically worry about it. If you had your debt entirely denominated in Japanese yen, for example, uh, then you just produce more yen. There's no, there's no limit on a central bank's capacity or government's capacity to direct the central bank to do that. The dilemma only arises when you have a country like America with American dollars uh, ending up having debt, which in effect has to convert its American dollars into renminbi or whatever the currency is of the country that holds large parts of its foreign debt. And if you have a plunge in the American dollar and then the cost of that uh, honouring that debt gets to be astronomical, uh, then at some point you can have a government simply saying we're not going to honour the debts. Now, we've had that happen at the level of Argentina in the past. Uh, there's a very good study, I think by Rogoff, I'm not quite certain of the name now, but uh, a couple of academics in America saying there have been like, 38 major instances of sovereign debt default in the last century in quite you know, countries you wouldn't expect and scales you wouldn't anticipate. Uh, so it does happen, and when it does happen, of course, then you cause a whole cascade of financial failures. It's it's the old popcorn effect where one one country refusing its debts has a cascade effect through others, and uh, you end up having another version of Bear Stearns. What happens socially? What happens to the man on the street? Um, you know, is, is, does his does his money suddenly become worthless? Does he? Is there suddenly? You know, do you get what kind of social problems do you have? What you tend to have is that the whole thing is excessive levels of debt, meaning the rate of circulation of money drops and the amount of money in circulation drops as well. And when you have a sovereign default of that sort, then you have a very accelerated effect of the same process. So suddenly the demand isn't there and people who are expecting a flow of cash to come through their businesses to support them suddenly find it doesn't happen anymore. They start sacking people and you get a dramatic expansion in unemployment and then the political problems that come from that. We shouldn't forget that the rise of the Nazi party in the second, in, in 1930s was specifically related to the American banks demanding the German banks, uh, the, the German uh, companies that are in debt to American banks, 
uh, repay their debts back. And when that happened, they did. Well, that was the collapse of the German economy and the rise of Hitler. So these types of debt uh, dynamics can be drastic. And we, we have yet to see any real political shift of any description, really, around the world, except in countries like Iceland and Latvia and so on, where there's been uh, a, a near total breakdown. And some, I certainly hope there's nothing like a rise of another Adolf, but uh, something drastic will have to happen because our political orientations are still dominated by Wall Street. The, the political strategy seems to be, uh, at the moment, as you say, brush the problems under the carpet, avoid the problems, mm. and if you avoid mm. them for long enough, they'll go away. Um, mm. The last time, I suppose you could say, that the, these kind of problems were addressed, um, certainly in the UK, uh, was in Margaret Thatcher's era when um, you had Paul Volcker putting interest rates up in the US to astronomical levels. You had mm. Margaret Thatcher in the UK standing up to the unions, uh, reducing their levels of debt. She was helped by the North Sea oil, of course. Um, of course. At, at what stage do you think a Western leader is going to stand up? I mean, it's just politically unacceptable or unpalatable at the moment. At what stage will they have to stand up? I'd say about three or four years after the crisis began, which I'd say would be maybe 2011, 2012. One of the most interesting instances of that, of course, was in the Great Depression. When you take a look at FDR and read his inauguration speech in 1933, it's a remarkable document. And in that, whether it was actually carried through in its toto is another story. But in that, he says at some stage that we have uh, uh, handed over our uh, halls of worship to the moneylenders we have uh, we, we have a problem caused by too much debt and the solution is only to offer yet more debt. Now, that's exactly the situation we're in now. And you took the complete turnaround of the political system in America that led to the New Deal that really meant to a total dest destroying the political power of Wall Street at the time. That has to happen again. And, of course, with the fact that you've still got you know, most of Obama's uh, economic advisers being dragged straight out of Wall Street... Um, and the, the bonuses they're paying themselves now, we are at least one, maybe three years away from that political shift starting. Do you think, you FDR's, the, do you think FDR's New Deal worked? FDR's New Deal worked for a number of reasons, but one of the most important ones was redu reduction of debt. There was a whole lot of terms tied up in the American system. I don't know the actual uh, institutional details as well as some of the American historians that I am aware of. I know, like now, Ferguson, for example, would be better on this than I am. But uh, there were large parts of the New Deal which specifically directed at reducing the level of debt that people got into and enabling the service a far lower level of debt. Of course, we all know that the level of debt that was pumped out, particularly in the last 20 years to households, was absolutely irresponsibly lent. There was no justification for that money. In Australia's case, the house ratio of household debt to GDP increased by a factor of five in just two decades. And that was all pretty much used, just pardon the Australian expression, piss up against the wall by driving up house prices. Uh, it was, did nothing to increase the productive capacity of the country, and really that 80% of GDP in Australia should be abolished. And the banks wear the consequences, which is most likely bankruptcy and nationalisation of them until such time as we work them out once more and can reprivatise them. Something like that is required. And, of course, we have, you mentioned how far we are from the circumstance like I'm describing right now. In Obama's inauguration speech, I noticed so many parallels uh, between his inauguration speech and, and FDR's, and, you know, I wasn't the only one to notice them. It was They, mm. were, they were commonly um, outlined in the, in the press. But Obama hasn't delivered, has he? I think he might go down as Truman, and that, would, that wouldn't be the fate he's looking for. Um, I, re I really do wonder what's going to happen there. I actually expected him to appoint people like Summers because... 
he's a, he's a politician, and politicians by nature generalist. He's an intelligent politician, and what intelligent politicians do is rely upon the experts. And of course, there's only one problem. Economists are not experts about the economy. If you trust neoclassical economists, you're trusting people who believe in a nonsensical theory and live in a world of delusion. And you add to that on top, people who have their hands in the gravy train of Wall Street, which is where the Summers and the Gardners and Co. came from, they have absolutely no knowledge of how the economy actually functions. Uh, but he's done the thing, he's handed over advice to them, he's listened to them, he's been following their direction. He has about maybe one year, maybe two, maybe less, because of the American political cycle, to get to the stage where he decides to show them the Wall Street, uh, the, 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 the uh, doors to the White House for, with, for, from the rear rather than the front, and the boot in the arse rather than arm in arm, uh, then he might have a chance. But it's really going to be interesting to see whether he can change his political um, position and evict Wall Street from the White House. And I, I don't think he's actually going to have time. I, I hope he does, but I think he may go down as Truman, who actually did try, but he tried exactly the same policies Obama's trying right now. I, I think it's very sad in a way because, I mean, he was elected with so much hope. And, mm. I mean, in that first year, he could have pretty much done whatever he liked. So if he really wanted to change things, he could have done. And in the end, it's just kind of, it's just more of the same. And, and now, if, I mean, we, we have an election coming here in the UK. And, and mm. it, it was the same with Tony Blair when he was elected. He, he had a real opportunity to, he could have done anything in that, in that first mm. year. And he didn't. And you kind mm. of think, if that's your chance, and I, I do hope they, you know, David Cameron, if he gets elected, as I'm sure he will be over here, uses that thing to make real change because you know that's that's the opportunity and and they there's this thing where they get elected and then there's this, there's this period of hope and then they disappoint on that hope it's it, it's a terrible shame but i think politicians are reading the public wrongly because they're so concerned with with pleasing every focus group and keeping everyone happy they end up losing all their identity and i'm sure if a real um, Maverick stood up and just said look these are the problems they need dealing with it's going to mm. mean a few years of pain but ultimately we'll all be better off so we have to do it I'm sure they'd be astonished by how popular response they'd get to that I think that's possible certainly at the moment the, the feedback that I get through my contacts are uh, uh, fairly strong that people want someone who has an idea of what they're doing and, and turns against the direction we've followed in the last two or three decades and firmly against it. Uh, but of course, that means confronting extremely large financial interests. You actually literally have to tell Wall Street, yeah, terribly sorry, you've made a big mistake. You're going to go bankrupt. Your shareholders are going to get wiped out. Your bondholders are gone. Uh, we're going to nationalize you so that we maintain the one thing you should have done, which you haven't done for the last three decades, and that's provide working capital to industrial firms. Uh, and all you guys who are the financial advisors, find another job. Uh, that sort of an, a, a confrontation is something politicians often resolve from because they're, the whole demeanor forces them to try to be popular with everybody, as you say. And yet in this particular case, it's the everybody they're, pop, they're being popular with ends up being the tiny minority that have profited it out of the financialization and, and the immense growth of debt, of debt in the last three decades. They have to be shown the door, but it will take a great deal of personal courage and the realization that you're going to lose politically before that ever happens. Um, I've had various guests on this program. Mike Shedlock is is one of my favourite guests, and one yeah, of Mike's uh, well, <laughs> one of Mike's favourite uh, solutions, if you like, to this problem is one to get rid of fractional reserve banking, and two to get rid of the Federal Reserve Bank. 
Mm. Um, we also had Bill Still on the show, who's produced this new film, um, The Secret of Oz, uh, in which he also calls to a change in the financial system, and, and he wants... Um, the nature of money to be changed to go from a debt-based currency to, to something else. Would you like to see any of those reforms made? Well, I, I actually, my analysis argues that fractional reserve banking would be is a bit like uh, Western civilization from Afghanistan's point of view. It would be a good idea. It doesn't actually exist. Uh, what, what fractional reserve banking implies is the government, first of all, seeds credit creation by creating fiat money, may make it say $100 million and then deposits that in bank accounts and the banks hang on to $10 million and lend out 90 and that 90 gets deposited and then they hang on to $81 million and another $9 million of that $81 get lent out and ultimately that $100 million creates a, a, a billion dollars worth of credit down the track. That's not empirically what happens and my theories are entirely based on taking a look at empirical reality and working out what makes sense of it. There's an alternative approach that argues that money is endogenously created. The banks create loans and that simultaneously creates deposits. And if they have reserve requirements, they can look into the reserve requirements after they've created the money and created the debt. So fractional reserve banking is not actually the problem. It's, it's the capacity of the financial system to create money endogenously. And as soon as you allow a bank to take deposits and make loans, or vice versa, you have an endogenous credit system. So my real problem is that that's inherent in the nature of the system. It's rather like being King Canute to say we're going to try to stop the tides coming in, you know, twice a day. I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. So what my reforms are about are really not about trying to control the banks, which are always going to want to lend more than they should, but to control people's willingness to take that debt on. And therefore, my reforms are directed at changing the nature of capital assets, the way we own them, so that there's no longer the possibility for large-scale leverage profits out of speculating on asset prices. And those are two simple reforms. I'd make shares last no more than 25 years, and I'd make house valuations based on the rental income of the property being purchased and limit the amount of debt that could be secured against that uh, property to, say, 10 times the rental income. And then we have a they, the, the idea of both those reforms is to make the value of capital assets much more closely linked to the income those assets generate, and that then removes the attractiveness of leverage speculation on asset prices. I, I, that's a wonderful idea. I've never heard it before, and I'm, I'm, I just think that's fantastic. <laughs> um, what do you think of gold? I think gold is a funny yellow metal, which is uh, immensely important in the periodic table, and therefore it has this amazing uh, property of longevity that no other element has, but it's also hanging off the necks, fingers, noses and all sorts of other strange orifices of large numbers of particularly Indian women throughout the world. There's an enormous amount of it out there which could be dumped on the market at any particular time, in other words. So even though people see it as a useful hedge against deflation, it's not a hedge against inflation, but a hedge against deflation. The trouble is it's a hedge which if people actually desperately need money at some point, they'll liquidate. So I think it's a, it's a when you have the system starting to break down slowly, then the American dollar falls and the gold price rises in American dollar terms. But if you have a real breakdown, then it's quite possible that gold could be dumped on markets if people went for cash first of all. And in the ultimate situation, if you had a total social breakdown, one of my bloggers put this brilliantly. He wrote that if you think you need gold, you need lead more. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning bullets. Meaning bullets. So I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those tangential and some very important sometimes hedges. But... Uh, I would never want to put my entire life in it.
I, I happen to like gold immensely, and I, I think it's a, a very good hedge. I, I see it not so much as a hedge against deflation or a hedge against inflation. I see it as a hedge against stress in the banking system. Well, that's fair enough. That, that's, that's fair enough. Like it, is in, it is certainly that sort of hedge. But, uh, I mean, partly because I actually want to get back to the stage where we have a functioning capitalist system with a, with a financial system that is properly constrained rather than letting it to become Dracula in charge of the blood bank. Um, I have, a, have a, an anathema to speculating that we might actually fail in that process and then going and buying gold. So for the same reason I hold, sold my house and got out of the whole property market thing, I also don't want to dive into gold because that would be a real statement by me that I think, holy hell, it's time to head for the hills. Um, I just want to touch on the subject of hyperinflation and deflation. I, I mean, I've, I've read all the arguments about deflation and I'm utterly convinced by, the, by them. And then I read the arguments for hyperinflation and I'm convinced by those as well. And, I mean, you described the, the rise of Hitler. I mean, you know, the cause of hyperinflation is too much debt. The cause of deflation is too much debt. The causes are the no, same. No, in fact, in fact, they're not, mate. The, um, the causes of inflation are such a runaway attempt to print fiat money to wipe out uh, financial obligations that you end up reducing the effective value of private debt to zero. Which, and, and you take a look at the Zimbabwean economy. I'm, I don't know the data, but I would be very highly surprised to find if there's any any private debt because unless you index that debt to the rate of inflation, it's very rapidly wiped out. So the cause of inflation in that hyperinflation sense is a is a, is a runaway fiat money press. Um, but I, that's why I see them having different causes. The other deflation is definitely caused by excessive debt. So the question for me comes down to whether you expect the fiat money system to pump out so much fiat money that it overwhelms the private debt, devalues it that way, and then sets up a hyperinflationary chain. And I don't think that is feasible given the level of debt we're in and, and the political attitudes of the people in control of uh, fiat money creation in the Western world. I would argue that, that at the moment it appears that they are trying to print uh, enough money to to, to wipe out all the debt, but yes, you're, as you say, the debt is so big. But the, that, that's not a, an argument I want to get into. What I was trying to say is that okay. the the net result is uh, whichever route you go down, whether it's a hyperinflationary one or a deflationary one, can be the collapse the, of the currency altogether. It, so in the end, I mean, does it matter either way? And surely you want your gold as a hedge against that collapse? Well, that's feasible. It's... It, it, um... If there's going to be deflation, if there's falling prices, then gold, um, money itself rises in value during a deflation. If you actually have cash, you're extremely well off. Gold tends to hold on to its value uh, when, it, when a deflation occurs, whereas during inflation, it tends to lose against rising prices. So you, if you're taking out gold, you're actually probably leaning to, whether people know it or not, they're leaning towards a deflationary analysis. Uh, it, yes, useful in that sense, but I again, uh, cash is also very good. And what I would hope to happen is that we don't do what we did during the Great Depression, which is wipe out deposits when we wipe out debt. And that way, therefore, with the cash should remain something which increases in value. And uh, ultimately, what we, did, what we have to do is really address the debt. And, and that's what I really hope to see. I mean, this is why I look at this in a long, very long run historical sense. And this is the largest level of debt compared to income that's ever been accumulated in human history. And I blame both the banks and central banks for that. I don't agree with Amish about uh, trying to abolish central uh, Federal Reserve banking because I don't think it exists. But I uh, do agree with them about abolishing the role of the Federal Reserves because they literally made this crisis 
twice as bad as it was by delaying it by 20 years. We should have this crisis back in 87. But having got the debt to the level it is, I would like to send a signal through history, don't ever do this again. And one way to do that would be to actually legally wipe out the debt rather than relying upon hyperinflation. Iceland had a deflationary bust uh, last year, but for holders of Icelandic krona, it wasn't a good thing to own. Well, that's because they had so much of their debts in foreign denominated and their currency wasn't real in, in that sense. They, there is, you know, the only industry in Iceland is, is uh, apart from hot water, is fishing. And uh, when, the, when the whole service sector collapsed and they owe, what, 10 times, the, 10 times their GDP in foreign debt, uh, they could no longer buy anything from overseas. So that's what made their corona worthless. It was devalued because they have to rely so much upon imports. Uh, that's a very unusual situation. Now, of course, it will happen to some extent with America and England and also Australia because we've sent our industries off to China. And if we do start having a currency fall, then the price of all those cheap manufactured goods we've been relying upon for a long, long time are going to rise pretty dramatically and holding on to English pounds won't make them any cheaper when you've got to convert those pounds into renminbi to buy them. Moving forward... Uh, you're just an ordinary Joe on the street. You've you've worked hard for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You've got a few savings. You've got some investments. How do you position yourself for all of this? What do you do? What do you do with your money? Well, I I, I get into cash, and um, certainly, I mean, they're, 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 I think the stock market bubble has probably run its run its course by now over the next three months. So I wouldn't be hanging onto equities right now. Uh, cash is the best way to be if you can hang onto cash. The, the trouble is, of course, you lose your income earning capacity if you're relying upon uh, you know, any interest flow from that. And uh, if you have a job, you hang on to the job. The, the need for security of employment is, is tantamount in a time like, like now. Uh, if you lose your job, then I'd get out there and be politically active because we really have to make a big noise and turn the politicians around. And one reason why we haven't seen the political shifts that occurred back in the 30s yet is that because with the breaking the back of the union movement and breaking the back of community groups and demonising social act activity, we've really let the, the, the Wall Street end of town take over the political agenda completely. So I would like to see people start organising and, you know, doing acts of civil disobedience that start turning the clock back away from the power of Wall Street and towards the power of the common man. <laughs> Absolutely. And woman. Government bonds, do you like them? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, the uh, the danger there is whether you have a, a government which has large amounts of foreign debt uh, in its own books. That might be a bit of a dangerous one in terms of the old default. Um, that paper by Rogoff, I think it is, is worth looking at to see how often it's happened in history that governments have defaulted domestically on their private on their government debt. I don't think it's been as bad as their foreign defaults, but I could be wrong there. So, um, but yeah, it's it, it's one of these times we've been we're doing the wrong thing for 30 years, and of course there has to be pain getting over that. If you if you've jumped off a cliff and you jumped off a cliff twice as high as you can possibly cope with, you're going to break a couple of legs. And yet the whole emphasis of everybody seems to be, how do I manage not to break my legs? It's going to be very hard to avoid pain in the next decade. Well, Steve, it's a superb blog and it's been fantastic talking to you. And uh, what can I say? Thank you very much. Would you give out your website for anyone who wants to find out more about you? Sure. The main uh, one that I'm active on is my debt deflation blog. So that's www.debtdeflation, all one word, dot com slash blogs. And then I have my website for my book, Debunking Economics, which is just www.debunkingeconomics, all one word, dot com. That's pretty much uh, been inactive for a long time, but a huge number of resources, lectures and materials there. And one of these days I'll get around to jazzing up with the 
the old word, WordPress. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, I, I've read your entry of December the first, and uh, I'll post a link on the on the on the homepage. But it's an excellent entry, and I would recommend everyone to read it. Steve Thanks, King, uh, my pleasure. You've you've got a flight uh, to uh, you're in Paris at the moment. You've got a flight to Australia in just uh, just a few hours. I hope it uh, I hope it passes quickly, and by the time you land, that all the debt has been purged. <laughs> I don't know about that thing, but I look for other, other activities that are very pleasurable when I get back home. All right. Have a good flight. Take care. Thanks, Dominic. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 